0: This podcast series will share personal moments of connection and deeply felt experiences. If anything you hear has a triggering effect, please reach out to someone who can help keep you safe. Or remember, you can phone Lifeline at any time on 13 11 14. A lot of people ask uh, about depression, how you catch it, or, or where did it come from? I don't have the answer to that, and from all of my reading and work with people... I don't think there is a clear answer. Fantastic documentary on SBS on Insight, had one on male suicide. And a question was asked of one of the men, you know, what made you do it? And he said, I didn't want to die, I just wanted to stop the pain. And with that, they panned through the audience and there was a whole lot of people nodding, including me watching the show. That's how it affects you.
1: Welcome to Lifeline's Holding On To Hope a podcast in which people who've suffered dark times share their stories of survival. Graham Holdsworth has helped build some of Australia's most prestigious buildings. Depression, however, caused him to lose his career, reputation and marriage, until he finally decided it would be easier for everyone if he was no longer around. Graham, now a granddad, explains the strategies he's learned to keep himself alive, while daughter Liza and mate Simon Coffin remind everyone of the importance of support.
2: When I think of good memories with Dad when I was little, it's being down the beach or being at the snow. And being at the beach, I used to love watching him on his wave ski because there were massive waves out the back and you're a little kid and you see your Dad flying down these waves and I just thought he was the best, you know,
0: doing that. I was the first person in in my family... uh, to ever go to university. Uh, so I've, I finally got into architecture uh, and, and, and completed the course and graduated as an architect. It made my father very happy. Yes, I got married very early. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, my final year at university, I was married and planned to have my first child in the first year after graduation. That's how confident I was that uh, uh, someone was desperately about to employ me. There are Three children from the first marriage they are actually all six years apart. When I first started as an architect, I found out that the person with the best job was the client. Uh, so I got interested in the process of building rather than wanting to be a design architect. What happens at the front end before an architect is employed? and What happens at the tail end when the building's finished and has to be commissioned, occupied, sold on or whatever the process is? Uh, so I headed off towards the development industry and I worked for a couple of major developers for a long time and then ended up starting a project management practice on my own and that led to me being involved at a fairly young age on a major development that somehow ended up a success Um, and for some reason I got some of the credit for that and therefore that set my path in my future career. Uh, From then on it was large project after large project, getting larger along the time I kept putting my hand up and saying, can I have a small one, but no one would trust me with a small one. So the sorts of things I worked on was the Crown Casino, that took five years of my life, uh, in charge of the process there right up to the construction. Uh, I went to Sydney uh, for the Grollo Group and did number one Martin Place, which is uh, the Sydney GPO, uh, Macquarie Bank headquarters and, and the Western Hotel. Uh, convention Centre, not Jeff Schenck's part of it, but the new part of the Convention Centre. So that's the sort of scale of projects that I was project director of. I really love my job. Uh, I, I love the processes, I love the people, the involvement, the excitement of it, the intensity. Especially the larger ones, um, they can turn into 24-7 jobs uh, without you, you really knowing. Uh, the people are fantastic. And the approach that we used to have to, which was a collaborative approach, uh, everyone worked together for the success of it, Uh, reminding ourselves that the buildings themselves needed a champion, so we had to make sure that the building was the best we could do for it. It it, it was great work. Partly because of uh, the the work uh, and the fact that we were married early and a whole lot of other reasons, that marriage broke down.
2: Their divorce wasn't (laughs) very amicable. (laughs) i say it was a bit messy and I think just with little kids you just sort of get caught up in it all and um, my dad had met someone else and started sort of a new beginning with her and that kind of hurt us I guess or me um, so it was harder to see him to know that he'd moved on to someone else when you're so little um, so I didn't see him for a long time.
0: Uh, and I met the most uh, beautiful lady who was in the sort of business we were in. She was a solicitor for a major firm that was working in some of the projects that I was working on. Uh, we, we fell in love and uh, that was the end of it for me again. Um, there was one child from that marriage. My wife was involved in, in planning issues and, and we had that in common. There was local community work. Uh, we set up a, a, a group here that uh, looked after inappropriate development in our own suburb. Uh, I did some work for planning policy for, for, for one of the political parties. Uh, so we, we were active, but together we took on uh, the, the saving of the Abbotsford Convent, which was designed for, uh, had been tendered out for, for, for high-rise housing. Uh, in fact, my ex-wife got a pro bono award for the work she did there in saving it. So it was those sorts of things that kept us busy and occupied, and the scale of work I was doing got bigger and bigger. Crown was in the middle of that one, uh, going to Sydney for two years for uh, number one Martin Place. That could have been uh, a work-related problem because uh, I went there on my own and I I commuted on a weekly or fortnightly basis uh, and our son was uh, only four or five years old so I don't think that helped the relationship. In the last couple of major projects I was working on, I started to notice there was something strange happening. Uh, it, it attacked me in sort of layers, uh, a bit like putting on weight. You really don't notice it until someone says, geez, you put on some weight. Uh, and that was the, what happened to me. I started to withdraw a lot more. I started to self-doubt a lot more. Uh, I, my management style started to change. So rather than talk through problems, I, I'd start disputes and yell at people and... Uh, and apportioned blame where we'd never done that before. There are two sides to the construction industry, the way to manage. One is to manage by fear. You yell at everyone, call them incompetent, useless, uh, and every mistake. And the other side is that to accept that what you're doing is, is a one-off. Uh, it's a prototype. You're using standard elements in it, but they've never been put together in that same way. And on big ones that run fast, someone's going to make a mistake. We always do, and I was going to make a mistake. So at the start, we got together and said, right, let's open up about mistakes early. Let's work together. Let's make sure we can solve them before they become real problems. And at the worst, what can happen? A bit more time and a bit more money, but at least we'll be open about it and people will know it's coming. I noticed a change with me when I became a lot more like the site, the management style that I detested so much. Uh, going in, yelling at people, apportioning blame, withdrawing from the process, um, it, it wasn't me. One of the, the first signs that there was something wrong with me was uh, when I started to withdraw. Withdrawal is a very large part of the process of people who are depressed. I'd re- withdraw from social occasions. I wouldn't go to work uh, socials. Uh, all the institute dinners and lunches and gatherings I used to go to, I used to be part of, I used to be active in those organisations. I now withdrew from, I'd send someone else along, I wouldn't bother to go. And I, I, I noticed that, that there was the anger, but I knew there was something really wrong when I became unreliable. Uh, you know, I could be on site, I could be at a consultant's office, I could be in my own office. There's lots of places I could be. So I'd say I was on site, but in reality I was home struggling to get out of bed struggling to leave the house, just total loss of vitality.
2: I think my my brother Darcy, who's um, my half-brother, Dad's um, son from his next relationship, he was at school and his teacher, I think knew my sister or something like that, and she was said that he'd talked about us in class, and it just sort of hit me in the heart. I was like, oh, you know, I don't want him to think that we don't, want anything to do with him I guess so I just called up dad and and Michelle and I I think I just took Darcy bowling a few times or just caught up with him occasionally and then they were looking for someone to be his nanny and I was doing some studying at the time so it just sort of worked and then I just actually lived next door and um, looked after Darcy for a year and dad was there but in hindsight now he wasn't very available and I that on I guess that he wasn't available for me but now I know that he just was sort of suffering in his own depression at that stage which I didn't realise.
0: After I'd noticed there was a change I was actually visiting my GP on some other matter and he said to me, what's wrong with you Graham? you're not your jerpy self, you haven't even insulted me this morning like you usually do. And I finally said well I don't know, uh, uh, there's, there's something happening. Uh, I'm not who I used to be. So he organised another meeting and we had a longer chat uh, and then he sent me off to see uh, a f- he's friendly psychiatrist and out of all of that it became very clear that I'd been hiding a desperate illness, uh, that I was severely depressed. And I'd been hiding it partly by not talking to anyone about it, including myself, and using some avoidance techniques. I was drinking a lot more than I was. That was part of the anger came from that. So... In the end of the day, uh, there was a client who was probably the client from hell who, who really wanted to run a project but didn't know how to. And I confronted him. And uh, I told him the way he should approach the project and let the people who know something about it to do it. But I did it in a style that wasn't me. And I hadn't prepared for it. I, I hadn't organised the politics. I hadn't organised the people surrounding me for support and so forth. And to tell you the truth, I'm not quite sure what I said. But when I went back to my desk, the people around me said, oh, there's a message, back up your desk, You cance- your contract's been cancelled, I want you out of here in two hours. So whatever it was, I got the message across. And that, that initially, I thought, ah, well, you know, a bit of misjudgment on my part, never been sacked before, new experience, roll with the punches but in reality as part of the change in me has been this self-doubt and this really gutted me. It proved all the things that I've been saying, you're useless to myself. I've been telling myself, you're useless, you're a fraud, you're no good, you've conned your way into this, you're going to get caught out sooner or later and there was proof I'd been caught out. I'd finally been. So I was far from well and far from rational. After I was the... removed from, from, from the project. Uh, uh, I then had real problems getting back into the business. Part of it was because of my age, because I was early 60s at that start, so i had a long career and there was lots of young kids snapping at our heels. Secondly, because the position I occupied, only very few people had the experience to fill that. So there's a fairly really small cartel of people who knew and the, but they knew exactly what had happened to me. They knew why I wasn't in a job and they knew I was suffering from a mental illness, so the stigma of that was, was difficult. But the third and probably the real reason is that my self-confidence wasn't there. I just didn't want to, to try anymore. Uh, it was a self-defeating attitude. You're not good enough, so don't bother. And it was interesting, a lot of people in my profession gathered around me offered me other positions, offered me assistance. But part of the withdrawal process, you knock them back once and they try again. They ask if they can do something, you knock them back the second time, maybe try again. You knock them back the third time, you don't hear from them again. Uh, And then you end up saying to yourself, see no one loves me, no one wants me, I can't get work, uh, I don't have any contacts. You're not trying and they've given up offering.
3: I met Graham through one of my bike shops. I had, I think, at the time, maybe three bike shops in Melbourne, and uh, yeah, I met him through, met him through uh, the one in Richmond, where just around the corner from where he lived. Yeah, look, I started to realise he wasn't doing so well when we had been to a few functions or birthday parties or parties, whatever, at his at his house, and then uh, it was made known to my wife and I that him and his partner uh, weren't getting along very well at all and he definitely didn't cope with that very well. Uh, and then they relatively quickly started, you know, I guess over 12, 18 months, I can't remember the exact time frame, but, um, uh, you know, seemed relatively quickly became quite a negative uh, relationship and I think he may have been, you know, definitely – adding fuel to the fire by drinking and, and so on. But, yeah, it was, it, was, it was well known to me that he was not in a good place within his relationship at home and then that, that deteriorated quite quickly.
0: Uh, my second marriage was a, a very happy marriage. It was a happy marriage for me. Now I'm not quite sure if the tail end of that had been all that happy for, for my wife. Uh, she had lived through the changes in me that I really didn't notice. And they'd maybe gone on for three or four years, slowly. Um, The Two years away in in Sydney uh, didn't help the matter. Uh, In reality, there was no real appreciation about mental illness, about depression, uh, no real acceptance that it was a a real illness and a serious illness. Uh, So uh, that was difficult. Uh, There was never really time to talk about the problem. The more bizarre my behaviour and irrational behaviour became, and it did, and I must have been difficult to live with, the less we talked about it.
3: It sort of took me by surprise a little bit that he was such a strong, success, strong, strong male, successful male in society, had done so much, achieved so much, done, done so much for others um, throughout his life. He'd still done a lot of great stuff and had achieved a lot. Called upon, you know, lots of staff and big building projects and all sorts of stuff. And I was, I was, I guess, long as short of it is, I was, I was really surprised and taken back that a person of that that um, mindset and stature in society could end up in a situation that he was in, where he was uh, mentally so unwell.
0: After the I'd been removed from the project and my marriage had broken up, and I was suffering very badly and I started to have suicidal ideation, I actually had come to the point where I thought I should act on it. I thought I'd be better off not there, everyone would be happier, I'd be less of a burden to people. Um, And in fact it was an irrational thought, but it was logical and slow, it wasn't agitated, it wasn't uh, out of anger or as as, as, as a rushed event. Uh, uh, and, uh, I, I planned it, I left a note, I got in my car, I put on a song that uh, had some lines in it about feeling hollow, and that's exactly how I felt, absolutely hollow. There was nothing in me, there was nothing left in me. Uh, and, uh, I went to our holiday house, and I sat at our dining room table, and in a very orderly fashion wrote, uh, five or six, uh, suicide notes, uh, Now I've still got them, and I read them back. They were very rambly uh, and somewhat illogical, but uh, the sentiment was good in all of them, uh, even though badly expressed. And I addressed them, put them in a nice little pile, and then because I was trying to... to, I don't have the the real answer to this. I think because I was trying to be orderly and not cause too much of a problem, because I knew it was going to be a problem, uh, I used the landline there to ring my own phone, which I'd never taken the phone with me, uh, to say, if anyone's looking for me, I'm under the veranda at the Holiday House. Um, and that was the, the next I knew was I was being saved by a couple of policemen. The reason for that is that back in town, they had tried to find me. They'd been to the Holiday House, the police, and I wasn't there. But they had hold of my mobile phone, so when they got the message... They knew what to do. So the circumstances of my survival were coincidental, if if anything. And I'm very pleased with those two policemen too, who ended up saying, I think their opening words to me was, I guess you're surprised to see us here.
2: And I was. Through connecting with others, we can hold on to hope. To speak to a crisis supporter, please call 13 11 14 24 hours, seven days a week. It broke my heart, it's a bit, you know, it was very sad. Um, My reaction straight away was just to help him because my stepmother wasn't there to help and my brother was still young, Darcy, and Dad didn't really seem to have anyone, so my first reaction was just to help him. And that's pretty much what I did from from that call I think
0: yeah uh, it's slowly slowly with the help of my psychiatrist and and the other interventions of going into into care um, I got better the interesting part of that was going into a psychiatric institution isn't the greatest place in the world to be um, probably the last place you'd want to be but the one place you really feel safe. Uh, and every time I was feeling really, really bad, I'd put my hand up and say, take me back in. Uh, and the compassion of the people there, the safety, even even the, the inmates, uh, they understand. There's a, there's a link in that sort of institution. There's, a, there's a, an overwhelming feeling of everyone looking after each other.
3: I didn't go into hospital, you know, sort of um, making it as if everything was going to be all roses. So I would go and visit and, and talk about his treatment that he was having, and he was having treatment that, you know, some stuff like getting his brain uh, zapped on a weekly basis, I think it was at, at, its, at, at one point, um, all sorts of different sorts of treatments, and um, which uh, I was unaware of, I guess, to a degree, and I was concerned for how, it was, how he was going with it. But in saying that, like the thing that was, um, he was never around me when I visited him, he was never, you know, obviously wasn't overly happy a lot of the time, but he was never really miserable and talking about wanting to kill himself.
0: During the process of my illness, uh, I've, I've tried a, a lot of antipsychotic or antidepressant drugs. Uh, and I've also had three rounds of ECT, electric compulsion treatment. Both of those are very successful for most people. Uh, the, the The range of antidepressant drugs is, is huge and every one of them can help other people in a different way. Unfortunately, they just didn't work for me. ECT treatment can be have a resounding success with, with a lot of people. Uh, and there's some terrific stories about that. But in my case, it did no good at all.
2: So he was down at the in the hospital for a while. So that was just going and visiting him as much as I could. Um, and then I moved in to his house with him back when he was on a lot of medication. You know, that that's hard to understand how bad he's feeling at those moments. But... Um, I don't think I really ever asked him how, like, what it was like. I think it's just more knowing that it's not a quick fix and just all you can do is
0: hope. They put me back into into a hospital and they were going to wean me off the cocktail of drugs I was on and put me onto an old one, part of the the old period. Uh, So they weaned me off my cocktail in the first week. I remember the psych coming in and to saying, I'm cured. What do you mean? I said, look, my hands don't shake anymore. Don't have any chest pains. The zinging sound in my head's gone. My stomach feels fine. I was not. I don't have all those knots in it the whole time. And he goes, oh, that's the side effects of all those drugs. You know, that's what happens. They're not major, but that's it. And the problem is, that we don't put you on something. There's a chance you'll go over the edge of the cliff again. Uh, you know, straight into into deep depression. And he said to me, because I had. Read widely about my illness, that I was going to suffer from it, I was going to know about it. So I created quite a library of works on it. And he said to me, have you heard about acceptance and commitment therapy? There's a doctor called, uh, Dr Russ Harris, who's written a book called The Happiness Trap. And I said, yeah, I've got that, but I've never read it because I thought it was one of those self-help books again. And if I picked up another self-help book that led me down a dead end, I didn't want to be there. And he said, well, why don't you try it? So I came, when I got out of hospital that time I came, I pulled it out of the shelf and I picked it up and I started reading and the light bulb went off. Finally I had an answer, I understood, I could understand the process, I could see a way out of it and now I'm a devotee of of Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. Acceptance and Commitment Therapy uh, works on the process that all emotions are real. and one of the, the problems of mental illness is one of avoidance. Uh, you don't want to feel bad, so you try and avoid it. Uh, avoidance techniques can be drugs, alcohol, uh, going off and doing weird and wonderful stuff, but not confronting it, being afraid of the feeling. Acceptance and commitment says accept it. It's there. Make room for it. Look at it. Uh, give it some shape. Give it some colour. Uh, breathe through it, importantly, uh, and in the end of the day, watch it. It'll change. And it doesn't last forever. Nothing ever does. Uh, so that's the one of it. Accepting your feelings, don't try and avoid them. The next one is to deal with, with thoughts. Uh, the key to it is thoughts are just words in your head. They're random words. Uh, they, they're meaningless. They're not true, although some of us believe they are. They're not right, although most people believe they are. Because we thought it, it's either got to be true or right. The philosophy you accept is doesn't matter true, false, right or wrong, only one judgment, helpful or not helpful. If they're not helpful, then move them on. And there's a whole lot of exercises of you know, putting, imagining a stream with leaves on it and putting your thoughts on them and letting your thoughts flow away. And we all know thoughts come and go. They come and go on a regular basis. Acknowledge it, move it on. Don't get hooked on it. Uh, and if you do get hooked on it, then have some real skills about stopping... Ruminating, and that's part of the process is developing a skill to stop ruminating. And the key to all of that is mindfulness to be in the present. Uh, Because we all go, Oh, my life's been terrible. Look at me, I'm sick, and I've lost this and I've lost that. We remember all the bad parts of our past, and then we just automatically transfer that to the future. Because of that, it's going to be like that forever. So I'm going to be miserable and sad and lonely. uh, So, what the heck? The simple practice is, what about now, this moment? You know, I'm doing okay now. I'm I'm with friends and I'm I'm out and the sun's shining. That's the answer to it. Life is about a whole lot of moments, one moment to the next moment to the next moment. So acts about stop looking into the future, stop living in the past, be in the present, be aware, be now. And mindfulness practice uh, gives you that. Meditation... uh, without all the, the restraints of, of meditation. But being me, I, once I found it and I took it on, uh, I found myself in seven-day meditation classes with five days of noble silence and up at four in the morning and uh, meditate through to nine at night. Um, a bit brutal, uh, but every time I, I start to get lazy, they bring me back into line. As part of the the, the process... Uh, of, of getting well, there was a lot of emphasis on neuroplasticity, being able to to rewire your brain uh, to uh, to be able to to get the neurons to work, to stop the old habits and create new habits uh, just by doing it. And part of that process was if you learn something new, uh, that people of my age still have an ability to learn. In my case, I decided the piano because I have hands that probably and fingers that probably should never think of playing a piano. Uh, large. Some people say my, one of my fingers would land on two notes. Uh, and the idea of one hand doing one thing and the other hand doing something else while you, you read uh, some hieroglyphics on a bit of paper, thought, now that's a tough process. Uh, so I took up the piano. I remember once uh, my daughter was here and I was beating away on the piano and she came up and she said, we think we've worked it out. We think you're playing Imagine by Lennon. And I said, very good. That's what I am playing. Part of the, the, the problem of mental illness is once you start the downhill spiral, your physical health usually follows you down. Uh, bad food, bad sleeping, too much alcohol, lack of exercises because you're not up, you, you don't have the vitality to do it. So as you're you're mind or mental health spirals down your physical health spirals down too and then all of a sudden you discover you have a lot of physical complaints as well as mental complaints the answer to get back up there is to attack both together if not attack the physical stuff first start eating properly exercising properly uh, getting your physical health together and to me one of the values the other thing about act is that you act on your values if you if You look at the things that are important to you, family, friends, work, leisure, uh, you name it. They're the things you value. When you're at your worst, look for one of the things you value and go out and do it. And to me it was that I used to be fit and healthy and now I wasn't. So that was one of my values. And I used to ride a bike a lot. I had a few bikes that were getting rusty in the corner. I pulled them out, got on them and started riding again.
3: We have a a Saturday morning shop ride that I've had as a part of my stores for nearly 30 years. Um, And Graham's been a big part of that for, I guess, the last, what are we, yeah, the last sort of 17 or 18, 18 years, 19 years, whatever it is. And uh, we've always sort of uh, encouraged each other or given each other a bit of a hard time if, if we don't turn up for the shop ride sort of thing. We've got a, a, an amazing community, I must say, with that shop ride and a huge majority of them know Graham. It's definitely, you know, uh, a big big part of that community thing that he, he really loves and, and everyone encourages him and it's good to see him get along. And so, yeah, cycling was, has definitely been a big, big, big part of, I guess, his rehabilitation to, to a degree, yeah.
0: In my case, I keep getting older and the kids I ride with keep getting faster. Uh, so I'm being dropped more often than I used to be. Uh, And there's some exhaustion and there's some pain and there's a bit of suffering in it, but overall there's some absolute joy in it Uh, and being reasonably fit again is is a lovely feeling. And it was good. The camaraderie of that was important. Part of the withdrawal process, I was now going out and making contact again. And out of them there were other social events that I started to go to. I, I made the decision that I'd never say no anymore as I had for, for years to, to invitations to do anything. My first reaction in the old days was no. and think of an excuse. My current approach is yes, go. If it's not what you want, leave. But don't avoid social contact, community involvement, any of those sorts of things.
3: And Graham and I get along and he was became, has become uh, a bit like a father fatherly figure for me because uh, I lost my dad when you know I was young-ish I guess as an adult. Um, it just works. It's one of those things, the relationships either work or they don't and it happens to. Uh,
0: for anyone who's, who's suffering from depression and anxiety, the one message I'd really like to give is one of hope, that there is a recovery. Uh, suicide is is complex uh, but it it can be solved, Uh, it it can be eliminated. Uh, Depression and anxiety are common, uh, but they can be cured. Uh, They can be looked after. Everyone should know it takes time and it takes patience. There's no silver bullet, there's no quick approach to it. But if they persist and they get advice early, uh, help early is the, the most important part. That's where I failed on two counts. One when I was first sick and on the second count is when I started to to think about suicide. Um, Getting help early is is important. Strengthening your ties with friends, uh, making them understand your your illness, starting a conversation. Always difficult to start a conversation, but if you pick the right time and you do, then it's very helpful. And for the people you're talking to, my advice to them would be uh, listen. Really listen to what they're saying. Uh, ask open questions, how are you, what's doing, Where? how do you feel and avoid the uh, I know how you feel because you never do know how they feel, you can't feel their pain or I was like that and I fixed it and this is the way I did it. Your solution to your particular problem isn't their solution to theirs but encourage them to seek help and to seek help early.
3: I just turned up and I was just there for him.
0: My middle daughter used to also ride, so we ran into each other in different riding groups, and then we started riding together again. Uh, and she met her boyfriend through riding, and he was someone I knew. So there was, there became a connection, uh, and uh, and out of that, uh, a very strong connection. Uh, she is now, she and her partner now have two beautiful young children. Uh, that's part of the process. So I'm now a grandfather that can visit two of his grandchildren.
2: You know, I look at my kids and see their dad there and see their granddad there, and I, you know, they're not going to know what they're missing out on because they'll just be used to it. But it just makes me happy that they've got that family.
0: Now that I'm well and truly on the road to recovery or am well again, I've discovered life is good. Uh, small things that are important uh, that you can enjoy.
2: I've always said that the things that I love doing the most that I've got from my dad like being at the beach or the surf club or swimming or skiing and cycling so yeah
1: Thank you for listening to Holding On To Hope Lifeline Australia is grateful to all our interviewees who share their stories in the hope of inspiring others We also acknowledge all of you who provide support to people in crisis and those on their journey to recovery If you found this podcast helpful or inspiring please share it rate it write a review or subscribe wherever you download your favorite podcasts if this story has affected you and you require crisis support please contact lifeline on 13 11 14. you can do this at any time or visit lifeline.org.au to access webchat every night from 7 p.m. to midnight if it's inspired you to be a lifeline volunteer or to donate please visit lifeline.org.au with thanks to Wahoo Creative for interviews, editing and production and the voice of lived experience, which is essential in the development of our work.